Hi, welcome to A Study in Granada. This is a weekly Sherlock Holmes book club where we watch the ITV Granada television adaption of the Sherlock Holmes series by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle while we read the stories along with them. This time, we're looking at the Naval Treaty. I'm Jack Snefflin, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Knoll. Hello. Mike knows the Sherlock stories pretty well, whereas I'm a huge newcomer. Fan, but not expert. I haven't, I'm not, no, I'm just, put it out there. I, there are some of the stories I haven't read, so I don't want to give off the impression oh. that I'm all-knowing. Oh, sure. Like, you're like, Bachelor is not PhD. Whereas Jackson uh, has not really read that many of the Sherlock Holmes stories or seen really many faithful adaptations of it, more of the newer stuff. So as of this, our third episode, I have read a total of three Sherlock Holmes stories. There you go. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, this had to be the third. Yeah, this one is a slog. Normally, I tell people to stop, make sure they've read or watched it before they get to this one. This one, maybe skip it. Let us talk about it for you. It's one of the few stories that gets into Holmes's like political cases, and it's pretty obvious why. They're not as interesting. So I actually, Jackson, we have a, I have a new little thing I want to try. Ooh. At the beginning of this story, Watson mentions three cases. The Adventure of the Second Stain, which we will get to in the course of this show, the Naval Treaty, and The Adventure of the Tired Captain. Now that is not a written Conan Doyle story. Frequently throughout this series, you'll find Watson referencing cases that we will neither see or hear anything about. So I've developed a little game where I'm going to read you three titles of adventures, one of which I have made up, two of which are legitimately referenced by Watson in the course of the Sherlock Holmes stories. And your job is to pick which one I have made up. Okay. So the first option, the giant rat of Sumatra, the Sutherford pear tree, or the woman at Margate with no powder on her nose. Um, the woman at Margate with no powder on her nose because there's too many words in it. I'm sorry, the Sutherford pear tree is the one that oh. I invented. So better luck next time. You see, if you had implied the use of deduction as I have taught you, you would clearly know that I would not have used too many words because you would have been alighted to that fact that it's too many words and therefore would have picked it. As always, you see, but you do not observe. In this episode, we've been trying to avoid getting to because it's um, sloggy. Watson comes to Sherlock with a letter from a friend who... Percy Phelps is his name. Percy Phelps. Percy Phelps has the least interesting mustache in this episode. He knew in primary school they were roommates or gym buddies or lovers, whatever. And his friend works for the State Department and there's this whole kerfuffle. It doesn't really explain what it is, but he needs Sherlock Holmes, a great detective, to help solve it. So they head down to this guy's house, and he is weak and tired because he's been sick for like two months, basically, after a important treaty that he was copying over at his job with the State Department or whatever was stolen right from under his nose. Right, from out from under oh. his very uninteresting mustache. Yeah. <laughs> So Percy Phelps works for the Foreign Office and was given this Office, very yeah. sensitive treaty that I think was signed between, like, England and France? I think it's England and Italy? Basically, his job was to put it in a drawer until everybody else had left, pull it out, and copy it in English, and then immediately put it back in the drawer until the next day. And at one point, he got very sleepy, so he ordered some coffee and then had to go looking for why his coffee wasn't there. And while he was talking to the commissaire... You're here, sir. Who's ringing the bell? Bell? What bell is it? It's the bell in the room in which you're working, sir. 
and when they returned, the, uh, the treaty was gone. And she explains to Holmes in great detail the layout of the rooms and who was where and what he saw and all that jazz. And it's another one of those, like, giving you all the clues to maybe solve this on your own if you wanted to thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're not going to get into the specifics because there are a lot of them. Yeah, so basically Percy suffered a complete mental breakdown and was taken home and was put in the room of his future brother-in-law who was staying with him and his fiance while he recuperated, which has taken almost 10 weeks at this point when Holmes and Watson approach. Holmes is like really unsympathetic, like even more so than in Dancing Men. He seems very almost like aggressive against them. Like he doesn't, he, I don't know. It's very strange that he's just like openly hostile almost with Phelps and his fiance, Miss Harrison. And we'll probably get into Miss Harrison in a bit, but one thing I want to get into here is that I missed some finer point of what the treaty was about. So I didn't get why it wasn't more of a problem that it had gone unfound for six weeks. Like it's still a problem people trying to solve, Mm -hmm. but it felt like, okay, this treaty hasn't been found, but nothing has happened. So I didn't feel like there was any tension to its absence. Yeah, I mean, they were very vague. It was just like, this is a treaty that needs to get found because it's very sensitive. And that was about the amount of detail we got on that. It's something to do with, like, the Mediterranean. Yeah, it's um, something about their plans for how they would, if France got an advantage in the Mediterranean, how they would respond or something. It's, yeah, I don't know, it's naval matters. England moves one ship to the Mediterranean. Uh, France blocks with one ship in the Mediterranean. Exactly. Neither ships move. Yeah. Percy lays out this entire case for Holmes. And basically, Holmes then goes into an extremely strange reverie about roses. What a lovely thing. A rose is. There is nothing in which deduction is so necessary. As in religion... It can be built up as an exact science by the reasoner. Our highest assurance of the goodness of providence seems to me to rest in the flowers. It is only goodness which gives extras. And so I say again, we have much to hope from the flowers. What was that? It's a good speech. Like, I would... From a Juilliard edition, I would give that speech as my like classical monologue or whatever. But yeah, it's just it it seems very apropos of nothing, and I don't know. It's it's odd. It's apropos of nothing in the story, and the episode does nothing to uh, apropos it of something to make it apro- to apropos it. <laughs> A- Apropophize. Oh, quick note: while we've been talking about this, I realized that there's actually dancing men. On the wall over there? Oh, good. Do you have a read on this rose? Like, is Holmes religious? Is that a thing? No. I don't know. Like, he's talking about goodness, and no. I really don't have a read on it. I didn't know if maybe you did. Um, I... A possibility is that he's trying to, like, reassure them that there... This rose suggests that there must be a, like, higher power, like or, like, a, a benevolent higher power, whatever. Hmm. And so... That there is some grand design at work or whatever. Sure. Which is, that's a reassuring thing. Lots of people turn to religion in times of crisis. I've done that. So I can't argue with that. But it it's not in Holmes's nature to do empathy and 
and and to be sympathetic in, in a case. Mm-hmm. And I don't get what this is. Yeah, it's just it's very strange, and I'm sure there are reads by smarter people than us who have right. looked at it, and we probably should have looked up some of those, but right, we're not that academic. No, that's from that's from my other podcast. Yeah. So Holmes and Watson return to London to do some investigating, and the first thing they do is they head to the office where Phelps was, and they meet with Inspector Forbes of Scotland Yard. And he has a very good mustache. He does. And it like hangs like down past his chin. He is originally like very abrasive with Holmes, and then Holmes just kind of like snaps him back into place. What do you want from me, Holmes? I know about your methods. You're ready enough to use our information. Then you try and finish the case yourself and bring discredit on us. On the contrary, in my last 53 cases, my name has appeared in only four, and the police have the credit in 49. I don't blame you for not knowing this. You are young and inexperienced. But if you wish to get on in your duties, you will work with me and not against me. Now then, what steps have you taken? Oh, no, the inspector, yeah. Come, yeah, yeah. No, this guy's no mustache, yeah. We, again, talk about the importance of the um, commissaire bell ringing. Watson mentions it. He's like, he, like, poses like... Now, whoever rang the bell rope must have come right over to the desk. Why? Ringing. I mean, was it the thief out of bravado? Or was it someone with the thief who tried to prevent the crime? And Holmes looks up at him like, I hadn't thought of that. And it's a really good acting moment from Jeremy Brett. It's again a moment where we see that Watson is there because he focuses on different things than Holmes does, and Holmes needs that to avoid his laser focus. Because the bell is, I would argue, the most important thing, which is why I'm glad they have Watson talking about it, because... If Watson talks, it matters. If Holmes talks, it's waffle. I think that because in the story, Holmes kind of goes through that thought process himself of like, was it the thief? Was it somebody trying to stop the thief? And he goes like, or maybe, and then trails off. I think that the look was more of like Watson saying that made Holmes think like, or maybe it was this third idea, Hmm. which I mean, it still makes him useful. Yeah. As much as I like Watson being useful, I don't almost don't want to give him too much credit because it is still Sherlock Holmes. But that's fair. But it's still a useful thing of like saying things out loud and then Sherlock mentally like responding with like, well, there is obviously a third option. And then like, be like, oh, that's good. Uh, It's also a useful thing for translating a written thing to a film thing. Mm -hmm. If you have it as a conversation as opposed to just like people talking or people writing things out, it's more fun to watch. Then he talks to uh, Lord Holdhurst. Lord Holdhurst, who is the head of the State Department or whatever. Mm-hmm. And the um, uncle of Percy Phelps, who got him this job. I know they're important for, like, giving Holmes clues and things, but neither the inspector nor Lord Holmhurst need to be here. Like, I don't... Yeah. You could have cut these characters and, like, just shortened the plot and not had that been a worry. This is what I mean when I was last week when I said that like this episode did not benefit from being needing to be 50 minutes long. And I get, I get it if they're trying to like set Lord Holdhurst up as a like red herring or something, but they they don't. There's nothing that like makes you go maybe Lord Holdhurst himself took the treaty. He's mostly here to set up that the treaty would like probably should have been sold by now to yeah. either France or Russia, which are the two like big superpowers that this treaty would supposedly end up in the hands in. 
And so it's yeah. been like 10 weeks and they haven't. And he's like, and if it had, you'd know, right? And Lord, Lord Holdhurst says like, yes, if they had gotten a hold of it, I would know. Like, it would be very obvious. So they haven't. When I was reading through the story, I could see why they, like, I could see them threading that, like, why has this not had any effect yet? But when I was watching it the first time, I didn't realize that was an important part of the mystery mm-hmm. as much. So I was just like, it, it felt like waffle, sure. even though it actually matters a lot. And it's kind of, it's, is what you should be focusing on. Because, like, for me, it goes, why hasn't it been sold, Bell, the family, more than anything else? But they kind of, sure. those aren't the clues that you, they highlight at first. So mm-hmm. You don't realize what you're supposed to be looking at. And that's relevant to the story. And near the end, they kind of, they talk yeah. about that. But uh, back at Woking, there's a little bit of a kerfuffle because Percy has decided that tonight he, one, is going to sleep in the room without an on, like, on-call nurse, and he's not going to take a sleeping draught. So he's basically going to, he's not going to take any sleeping pills, and he's going to be by himself. And in the middle of the night, he wakes up as a man with a knife attempts to break into the room. Which convinces Percy that he's at the center of some great conspiracy against him. Although he is surprisingly calm about it that night. Like, mm-hmm. he, if a man comes to my window with a knife, I'm going to freak out. Like, if my roommate comes to my door with pancakes and I'm not awake yet, I'm, I'm going to freak out. I want to talk about Percy in the show here real quick. Because sure. he has... Really hot? What? Nothing. Go on. <laughs> well, he's talking to Watson and Holmes, I believe. He has... We'll call it an episode of brain fever, as they call it in this. And it is funny. It's not supposed to be, but he overdoes it so much. Though I was the victim of an accident, there are no allowance for accidents in diplomatic circles. Like how hard he's trying to make this seem like he's having a huge breakdown. I don't want to be insensitive. It just was so overdone, like way too much. He took it up to 11 and it didn't need to be. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if David Gwilym was like the wrong choice for this role or if he didn't have the right direction, or who didn't know like what kind of tone they're going for, but he kind of he always felt like he was a little more than he yeah. needed to be. Like he like if like he was at eleven, whereas this is British television, so everybody can only go up to a like a seven at most. Holmes basically tells Miss Harrison that it's vitally important that she does not leave the room that Percy has been in, as he and Watson take Percy on a walk around the grounds to investigate some stuff. And that she stay in the room all day, and then at night when she goes to bed, lock the door behind her and take the key with her. They go and uh, investigate the grounds, and Holmes suggests that Percy return to London with them uh, to help with the investigation and stay the night. And when he agrees, basically Holmes puts them in a carriage and tells them that he'll see them tomorrow. He's got some other stuff to do here, and just sends them off to London. Gets out of the car halfway through and walks up into the woods, which... We've all been there. The next morning, we find out that he returned to the house late at night and from the stable was watching and caught the brother-in-law, Joseph, sneaking into the room with a knife. And then in the story, he pries up a loose floorboard 
And in the episode, he's like cuts open the bottom of a couch. Because that's a little sure. bit easier on the budget. And it turns out that Percy has stolen had stolen the plans and just gotten home before Percy and hidden them in the room. That was his room. But because Percy was sick, he got trundled out of the room to a different room so Percy could have that room for sickness. And basically for 10 weeks has been somebody's <laughs> always been there awake and on guard. So he couldn't come back for it. <laughs> I'm sorry. For, for whatever reason, Percy can have that room for sickness uh, broke me. Sure. Um, we didn't do anyway. a very good job yeah. of explaining like some of the clues of this one, but there were just so many. Yeah. There's a lot of like, Oh, like this person got on a train at 9.15 and this person's still here at 10.30 and this person wasn't accounted for from 11 to 11.15 and then, yeah. you know, the drive from Derbyshire to Herbersham is like 23 minutes long and... So, uh, let's let's wrap this up before we... Uh, we I do want to come back to that point about the clues. But oh, so, sure. we get this ending with Holmes returning, like... Phelps stays at Baker Street and the next morning Holmes shows up and has like a bandage around one of his hands... And he insists they eat breakfast. And Phelps doesn't want any breakfast. And Holmes is like, well, then please help me with this silver tray. And he lifts the lid, and there's the naval treaty. And again here, the guy who plays Phelps really just overdoes it, like running around the room, dancing and repeating, the treaty, like giggling. As Mrs. Hudson, like a yeah, as boy. Mrs. Hudson, Sherlock, and Watson just openly laugh at him. Like, they're happy. He's this happy. But it's just like this weird scene of them. Like, it made me think of, like, home videos of a kid on Christmas. Yeah. And so Holmes then relays this story of how he found out. He also basically let Joseph, the brother-in-law, get away because he figures that Percy and the foreign office don't really want a police investigation into this matter. (laughs) Which kind of, as I've said before, leads with Holmes catching the person isn't always the just or the right thing to do, maybe. Like, he'll solve the case, but maybe just not really going after this one after that is right. the best idea. Yeah, because, like, the brother didn't have, like, malefic intent. He's not, like, going to... He's not, like, a spy or a terrorist. He just happened to steal a thing because he needed money. Like, Yeah, he. that's the thing that's set up, too, is that Joseph dabbles in stocks, and Holmes, I guess, found out that he lost a lot of money. And so he went to see Joseph that night and Joseph wasn't there. So he rang the bell for somebody to come up and like tell him where Joseph was. And then he saw the treaty on the desk and stole it. Cause he figured out it. he realized it'd be worth a lot yep. of money. So in the story, Holmes mentions that the, the difficulty in this case was there were just too many clues and it was siphoning through them to find the relevant ones. And I feel like that's where the episode kind of lost a step was they needed to just be like clue after clue after clue like this one. They had some, and I could see like a couple of red herrings here and there, but there didn't really feel like there were that many clues. Like they didn't really dig into here's how here's just like a, you're like a plethora of clues, like a an embarrassment of clues. Holmes does at one point say that this episode is like this adventure is abstruse and complicated, mm-hmm. which is true. Like there is a lot of information, but it's not it's not presented as overwhelming to them. It's just presented as being kind of all like at the same tone, like no clues are particularly shocking or particularly um, dynamic. Seem more important than any other clue. Yeah. There's a, like, we're going to talk about uh, Sherlock Holmes, but first I want to talk about an amazing turn of phrase from this episode. Sure. Which is also in the story. Holmes has solved some minor thing. He's like, he drops some 
liquid onto a test strip, and he's like, if it turns blue, a man is innocent. If it uh, if it's red, it means a man's life. It turns red, and it's like, oh, mystery solved. Watson, truly, you have something more interesting for me. You are the stormy petrel of crime, which is an amazing line. What commonplace little murder. You have something more interesting, I fancy. You are the stormy petrel of crime, Watson. What is it? I looked this up because I, I first like I thought he said the stormy petrel, and I was like, that doesn't make sense. So mm. I looked it up, and uh, stormy petrel is a seabird known for its ability to predict bad weather as a phrase it is used to indicate trouble is on the horizon and like the superstition wasn't like storm like petrels brought storms with them but that's just like their feeding habits happen to coincide with weather patterns or whatever so yeah but it's just a good like it's a good line it's a very like cinematic line mm-hmm. and jeremy brett delivers the perfect sure. of course this episode we also quickly get the introduction of the persian slipper Help yourself to tobacco from the Persian slipper. I shall be at your service in an instant. Which, again, you'll see a lot of. His, basically, it's just this where he keeps his tobacco and this like Persian slipper by the fireplace. But we will see that again and again and again. Mm. So I know that you wanted to talk about um, Holmes being kind of testy that Watson has a job. Yeah, which in the story, that line is also there, but it's like it's an offhand thing, not like a... Um, yeah, it's Doesn't, like turn to him and say like, "Ah, oh, you want to go heal people in your doctor lab, mustache twirl." I, I in the story I read it more as like he's kind of he's more put out like in his head he's put out that like his best friend can't come out and play and so yeah. he kind of gets a little more aggressive about it like oh I guess if you got to go do your job but it's more of like oh but I won't come play come outside come play with me I like in the episode it's much more like I guess if you want to miss out on this really cool adventure. Like, it's, it's not as, like, accusatory. It's more of, like, all right, I guess you don't have to come see what's going on with this really cool job. That's a read, but to me it seemed kind of, it was just, like, the framing, the camera angle, whatever, mm. it seemed kind of judgmental. Hmm. Not quite sinister, but, like, definitely a little bit cold. And it felt out of step with this Sherlock. There's sure. definitely other Sherlocks who will be, like, dismissive of Watson, but this Sherlock doesn't seem like he would be, like, it neither seemed like, oh, I want you with me, nor did it seem like, oh, it's cool, sure. I'll, I'll be fine, yeah. Sure. But he seems, he's also angry with the um, the Blevins, or whatever their names were. Uh, the, there was Miss Harrison. Yeah, yeah, Miss Harrison and Percy. Mm-hmm. Them. Yeah, it, I don't know. I'm bad at names, I'm You're sorry. Fine. This one seemed weird that he just, like, like I said, he seemed openly hostile to them. And, like, I could make a case that he doesn't want to get cozy with Miss Harrison until he's sure that she's not involved. But sure. He was, like, also just kind of openly aggressive with Percy as well. Although, again, probably trying to make sure that he doesn't immediately take to him and be like, oh, well, yeah, he must be telling the truth. Like, he might, he could also theoretically be in on it. I have another read. Sure. And I'm trying to avoid being, like, the, like, uh, Holmes and Watson are lovers person about things. Sure. Uh, Watson does talk about uh, Percy as, like, an old school chum. He's very warm with him. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of, like, good, happy smiles. And I can see there being an element of jealousy coming in. Okay. Um, whether just as like a, like, no, Watson is my friend kind of thing, or in a like, do I need to be worried about this guy kind of way. Mm. That's a, re- it's not like, sure. it's not supported by like text, but just right. like, that's a reason it could be. Yeah, no, I understand. You're, you're putting this forward as like, this could be read as this. You don't have yeah. like, you're not forwarding that as, I mean, you could be forwarding inside your opinion. I don't, I'm not judging. I, but I, it seems more like yeah. it's like, you know, this could be a read on that. 
Yeah. I think, like, it's it's something that makes sense beyond just IDK, a weird directing decision. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I, I lean towards maybe he's just trying to, like, in this case where there's a lot at stake, he's trying to keep kind of aloof of everybody who could be involved. Because Percy could be faking. And I yeah. feel like that's kind of backed up by, at the end, he's, like, very warm and, like, with Percy, like friendly and i guess sympathetic but like generally much warmer to percy than he has been for most of the thing yeah that's fair you mentioned the stakes Mm -hmm. and i acknowledge that those are definitely a thing to that matter but i think it's part of the problem i have with this episode like i know that they're like if the treaty gets out it's bad but it didn't get like what the ramifications are beyond it will be bad for the nation like it wasn't it wasn't something as concrete as my reputation will be ruined, mm-hmm. um, precisely. Like, that's kind of already a thing we're worried about. And it wasn't as something as grand as this will cause World War One or whatever. Right. I also like how in this episode, Sherlock, like, wantonly admits to being a drama queen. Ah, oh, there, there, there. It really was too bad of me to spring it on you. But <laughs> Watson here will tell you that I never can resist a touch of the dramatic. Oh, yeah, no, I... I've had to sort of come back around on your way of thinking on this one of like now that especially now that Holmes has openly admitted like I'm sorry I have a touch of a flair for the dramatic like but you know he's Sherlock Holmes why not yeah I mean if you can pull it off why not um, uh, to my knowledge there's not an episode where that blows up in his face which would be an interesting story I always like it when characters who are kind of the best at what they do uh, get humbled by some sort of flaw. So, like, Sherlock Holmes being brought down by his hubris is, like, would be a good thing to cam up occasionally. Which, like, we had Scandal Bohemia, Bohemia, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I want, I want more of that kind of thing every now and again. So, there's one thing I want to talk about, and then I think there's something that we need to talk about. Yeah. Reading the story, I realized a question entered my mind, and it's one reason I think I really like Watson in the show, and one reason I tend to, like, I think give Watson more credit than Watson deserves in the stories is that in the show, we don't get as much interiority. So Watson being like being confused at Holmes's methods and the way he thinks and all that is because we don't have interiority in Watson's head. Like we do in the stories, like at the end of this, the end of the story, like I knew how it turned out because I've read this before. I've seen the episode a number of times. He tells Percy you should go to sleep and in the morning Holmes will be there and everything will be fine. And he goes to bed and admits, like, I laid awake all night, tossing and turning, trying to figure out what my fr- what my friend could be doing back in Woking, I think. I was going to make one up like you did, but I think it's Woking. And I'm, I'm sitting there like, well, because it's there's probably still there. Why would he have her sit in that room all day? Because he doesn't want anybody in that room. And again, maybe it's because I knew how it turned out. But I was sitting there like, Watson, how can you not figure this out? This isn't even difficult deductions. This isn't even like I deduced by the fact that you had chalk between your thumb and index finger yesterday, <laughs> whatever. And I, I, I feel like that interiority almost makes Watson dumber because he can't figure it out. He's Watson. Like in a book, we can't have Watson like starting to piece it together because he's right. we're in his head. Like I get that from a narrative standpoint, but it's just like, oh, I'm just, I'm just sure flabbergasted about this one. I say, old bean. And, <laughs> and like, on, like, very simple points of very easy thought process of, like, I wonder why she had to stay in that room all day. It was like, well, there's a very easy answer to that. He doesn't want anybody to get into that room unnoticed. Yeah, and I think it's kind of a hard thing to, it's a hard thing for the show to get into because they have a limited runtime and they have to pack in so mm-hmm. many things, like the useless inspector who served no plot purpose and served only to, you know, let Sherlock rant about things. 
But I think it would have been really cool if they had gone into that more, because the idea that Watson has a bit of an inferiority complex from being around the smartest man in England would be a really, like, cool thing to, to dig into. I, I feel like you're going to be like, well, actually, he's not the smartest man, which, fair enough. I, but, I wasn't going to. Yeah. Oh, cool. I mean, that's not a thing that I would like, actually, I think you'll find. Although, you will find, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it. We'll get to that when we come to it. Yeah. I don't know, like, I... I don't know, I guess that comes back to my my personal like Holmes and Watson dynamic of like giving Watson inferiority complex I think starts to like put a wrench in like their pretty good friendship. It starts oh, to get sure. resentful, no. I feel like at times with that. And I don't know, it's an interesting character trait, but it's not for me. Yeah. This is my this is my arms crossed pouty fanboy opinion. Like I agree with you that that would make Watson probably a little bit more interesting. Oh, sure. It's not so much that, like, I think that you have to have that in there, but I think that's a a definite possibility. Mm-hmm. And I could see how him wanting to solve the problem would be kind of a way to – that could come up as he tries to solve problems and, and can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I like that while we don't get that good interiority, we also get this Watson who's happy to be along for the ride, mm-hmm. even if he isn't solving things. That's a good point. So there is one thing that we need to talk about, and I think it's a new segment for the show. And I don't have a fancy name for it yet. But basically, we start with the Scandal Bohemia. And we take, I think we would both agree, the King of Bohemia, who has the best facial hair in that episode. Oh, of course, 100%. And we pit him up against everybody from the Dancing Men. Does anybody in that episode have better facial hair than the King of Bohemia? Yeah. Like, Watson has a good mustache. Oh, yeah, it's a solid mustache. I'm I'm talking like... Also, we can't count Watson's mustache as like a... All right, so then this episode, the Naval Treaty, is there anybody in this episode who can step to the King of Bohemia facial hair-wise? Okay, so we've got two contenders. Mm-hmm. One, the foreign minister or whatever, the Lord, old guy Lord who Holders. has like... Yeah, Lord Holters, whose mustache goes out and then goes down and goes all the way to his collarbone. Like but this, like, he has like the same sideburns thing that the King of Bohemia did. It's just very thin and long. It's, uh, it's a very powerful look. Like, I feel like he could, like, you know how uh, in the trailer for Mission Impossible Road Protocol or whatever the new one is, where uh, Henry Cavill, like, reloads his arms? I feel like he could do that with his mustache. Okay, that's fair. Um, On the flip side, there's Percy's office mate who has this, like, perfectly curled mustache. It's just, like, it's very French, <laughs> and it, like, it's, uh, like, a very elegant thing. Then on the last hand, there's also Percy's brother-in-law has a mustache that is like thick and sharp, like uh, like a bear's fist. At first, I thought when I I was I was doing something and I looked up glancingly at the screen and I thought he had like a very long like pointy one that like came out to here, but it, I don't know. I don't think it's as full. I think that it that there's no way he would ever beat the king of Bohemia. No, definitely not. My vote's still the king. I think his full lustrous facial hair beats out even the the french curls and the distinguished length of the of lord holdhurst lord holdhurst would be better if it was like fuller mm-hmm. uh but his age is against him in this one so the king of bohemia is still the current winner of must clash oh there it is must clash thank you do you have any parting little quick last minute thoughts so uh, at one point, someone introduces Watson as Holmes's celebrated friend, which is definitely an old time old time euphemism for a guy's boyfriend. Yeah, confirmed I, bachelor. Th- yeah, exactly. Yeah, that kind of thing. 
again, I'm not I'm not here to ship, but I I will still definitely use celebrated friend as a as as a nom de plume of all future people I date. I wanted I had an interest. There's just a thing that struck out to me about an actual valid point. Uh, connections in this one, like they get on the case because Watson went to school with this guy. This guy got his job because his uncle is Lord Holdhurst. Joseph was on the scene to steal the treaty because he's the brother of of the fiance. Uh, like I don't. It was just a weird. Like the commissaires, the guy who was fixing the the coffee or whatever, his wife comes under suspicion because she was there. Like, it's just this weird, like mess of this person's connected to this person. And that's how they fit in. Like, it was just a weird, I don't know. Connections was just a thing that, again, I don't have like a thesis written for this. It just was a thing I noticed. You can always call this episode the French connection. I hate you. I'm sorry. I mean, that is definitely a part of um, this time's British politics where you Mm -hmm. have a lot of like, the old boys club was how you got jobs in government. They made a big point at the beginning of like establishing that Percy Phelps though, like was really good and deserved this job. Oh, sure. Which I, I, I kind of like, you know, cause at that time, like you said, it's a lot of like nepotism and it was, this was meant to be like, no, like he was really good at his job. This wasn't just like he was incompetent and that's how he lost the treaty. Like, he yeah. just, whoops, I lost it. Like it was, he was a very good at his job person. There's a good sentence. Jesus Christ. If this guy loses his job, it will be a great loss for Britain. Yeah. There's a great yeah. line Holmes has at the end. It's basically, Watson's like, oh, Holmes, like, what's happened? And Watts, or Holmes says something about breakfast, and Watson's like, but Holmes. And then Watson, or Holmes says, oh, come along, Holmes. That bandage tells of adventures. Now, what happened? After breakfast, my dear Watson, remember, I have breathed 30 miles of sunny air this morning. I just like that line. I think that was so funny. Of like, please, I've breathed 30 miles of Surrey air. Oh, can we talk about that weird fight scene before we go? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fight scene. I think it's supposed uh, to be in slow motion. Parts of it definitely are in slow motion, yes. Uh, visual, if you didn't watch the episode, uh, you have the shadow of the brother-in-law leaning over the couch, you know, getting the treaty out, and then Holmes's hand reaching out to Vulcan neck pinch him or something. Mm-hmm. This is all seen in shadow, and, and then the brother-in-law turns around and slashes with a knife, and I'm like, okay, this is artsy, it's cool, it's weird. It's gothic, because you have that like shadow going on. But then it cuts to Holmes getting cut on his hand in, in the most like sedate way possible. Yeah, like, he's very chill about it. It's like in The Dark Crystal, when that one guy's like, oh, my hand. I have a note in here that, more about just praising Jeremy Brett, about oh, sure. how Always. he really kind of injects the moods in this at the beginning where you mentioned uh, he dabs the chemical on that paper and it's like, oh, that's what I thought and sends the telegrams and then he slumps in a chair and in the story he just says like, all the text says is like a very commonplace little murder, Holmes said. And in the episode, Jeremy Brett says this was such like bored bitterness, uh, but it's, that wasn't like written in the story. There wasn't like a, cl- a cue there to do it with bored bitterness. Yeah, I think that it, it feeds into that thing where uh, this Holmes just really needs that stimulation. And so having something as simple as an easy yes or no test mm-hmm. is boring to him. So he's kind of, this was what he would have wanted, some big, complicated thing with all the, all the moving parts to figure out. It's also like really clear because his hair is all tousled. He's wearing like like a robe like he basically like hasn't slept in days or like woke up at some very ungodly hour and just got to work without like showering or anything so like it adds to that mood of like he's just bored luckily this was a uh 
a most remarkable experience, as he says of this episode, which it sure was. It was definitely an experience. <laughs> All right, Jackson. If that's everything you've got, I think, we, think we've closed the case. Got anything you want to plug? Uh, yeah, I have a podcast with my friend Madison Jones called The Equalizers. Uh, we take movies that never got a sequel or a prequel because either they were too good and don't need one, or they're too bad and they don't deserve one, and we give them one. Uh, usually not very good ones. Uh, you can find us online at The Equalizers, and we spell that E-Q-U-E-L-I-Z-E-R-S, like in sequel. And I'm the co-host of Gratuitous Pausing. We take two movies mostly at random from a select category and talk about which is better. We're doing a Disney bracket right now. We're gratuitous pausing. We're on Twitter and Facebook and Podbean. We hope you listen. Be sure to check in next week as we see if Jackson Eflin can solve the adventure of a solitary cyclist. Rare to meet thy go.